Hey, it's Mark Shifley here. You're listening to the Jet Centric Podcast. Welcome back to the Jet Centric Podcast. My name is Ryan, one of your hosts, and today we have episode 107. In this episode, Liz and Brian were joined by Garrett Hull from Hockey Data to break down the numbers of the Winnipeg Jets. They talk about the reasons why hockey fans tend to reject analytics, what the difference is between public and private data, and what is going on with some of our specific players, and why Winnipeg might actually be able to ice four forwards and one defenseman and see better results because of it. We have a ton of new content that is going to be released within the next few days, and we are also doing post-game recaps live on Twitter after some games, so please check us out at twitter.com slash jetcentric, and as always, thanks for listening, and enjoy the episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Jet Centric Podcast. It's Liz here and Brian, and we are lucky to be joined by Garrett Hull today to talk about some of the stats and some of the analytics of the Jets and learn a little bit more about the numbers behind it. So Garrett, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Great. So um, just a little bit of sort of background information before we get into the crunching of some of the more advanced stats. Um do you want to sort of tell us about what it is you do and what you do for teams and why we should trust what you say about the numbers more than Twitter user Craig nine zero one one seven four three. Oh, my favorite first name, number, number, number. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so the fast version of how, of my background and story um, originally from Winnipeg was a big Jets fan growing up. Uh, my family moved out West around the same time as the Jets left, I uh, tried being a Coyotes fan, but that didn't work out very well. Uh, tried being, I did, did not try being a Canucks fan because there was no way in heck. Um, and uh, so I just eventually became just like a casual hockey fan, but everyone knew me as the guy that used to really like the Jets. And long story short, I was in university um, taking some analytically inclined courses, mostly in bioinformatics and analytical chemistry. Uh, so I was being a nerd and um, around that same time was the time that Jets came back. So I started checking out some websites because I knew nothing about the Landra Thrashers other than like Ilya Kovalchuk, Hosa, and like, like those era because like I had them on my um, fantasy rosters. But that's about as much as I knew about those teams and their history. Uh, so and I eventually stumbled on the blog, uh, the blog behind the net, which eventually became Arctic Ice Hockey um and that's for people that don't know behind the net was literally the first website where you could easily uh look up players coursey and that kind of those kind of statistics um prior to that there were some ways but they were quite difficult to navigate unless you kind of knew about stuff like timeonice.com and nice timeonice.com um so that was kind of my introductory to things and i asked a lot of questions and then um uh eventually i got the opportunity to write a little bit on arctic ice hockey then i eventually moved over to jets nations that i managed um i randomly tweeted out would people be interested in me writing on hockey stats that wasn't jets related and two two other people said oh can we be involved in that as well and i said sure and so we started our own blog which is hockey graphs which is not small anymore um it's quite large uh, grew well beyond my expectations of it just being a place for me to uh, rant and blurb. Um, but that eventually made enough of a name of myself that I started working for a local player agency based in Vancouver. Um, 
the short version of what I did there was I mostly did um, uh, developmental statistics. So we'd watch and track stats for a player uh, who is under the player agency, um, who is hoping to make the jump to an, another level the next year. So let's just say NCAA and they want to go to the AHL next year, or maybe they're junior hockey and they want to go to CIS or something like that. Um, we track stats for them and we kind of tell them how to make their game better, what they're lacking that for people that make the next step or what do they do well, how they can sell themselves. Because one of the things is if you're not an NHL team, you don't really have much of a scouting resource. Um, so like, you know, these kids that are like hoping to try to make it to the ECHL next year or, or the AHL or the SP or whatever, they might've been seen like once or twice at some sort of tournament. Um, so having like a stat package that says like, this is what I do well. Um, this is how I perform relative to my peers that kind of, um, gives them some ammunition, but also it allows scouts to be um confirm that like okay yeah yeah i said this guy was a high volume shooter and it turns out he's shooting about 1.5 shots per game more than the average um so that's how i kind of got my start in analytics uh in terms of professionally eventually um moved out uh doing it myself well not myself but um started a company that i'm part of um kind of doing the same idea um mostly uh, we also sell um data to nhl teams um I personally don't do any analysis for NHL teams. Uh, that's not necessarily what I do, um, but we do do analysis and stuff for that for other other levels. Um, yeah, so that's a long story short. My whole life put in a couple paragraphs. <laughs> that's really neat. Um, I just had a question, kind of uh, fans. I think in hockey tend to, I don't want to say reject analytics, but I think are more hesitant to uh, kind of put a lot of stock into analytics versus maybe uh, a sport like baseball. Um, maybe wondering if you could touch on kind of uh, sort of the differences there and maybe how, uh, how if analytics is more important in baseball or less important in hockey or whether it's kind of the same or I was wondering if you could maybe touch on that a little bit yeah that's a that's a really good question um the short version of it and then I'll try to expand past it is that they're kind of similar but extremely different um so the two largest differences between baseball and hockey is one um hockey is a lot more variance driven and luck driven uh, that mean, and the way that like hawk, like when most people think of luck, they're like, oh, the puck bounced off that guy's ass and then it went into the net. That's a very lucky goal. Um, stats wise, we look at lucky being a little bit different. That means um, outcomes happening a little bit different than what you would generally expect. Uh, so, you know, that's like you can win a bunch of money if you roll higher than a two or higher and then you roll the dice and you hit a one that's kind of unlucky. If you hit the two or above, that was, that's not lucky because it was kind of expected. And like the better version of that would be, now imagine you roll the dice like a thousand times. If you hit uh, the one more often than expected, then that's unlucky. Uh, so that's kind of how, um, so that kind of influences the two. And then also what influences the two is baseball is a lot easier to model um, in terms of, I, I wouldn't say like, the entry level of baseball was a lot easier to model because it was very one-on-one. -on -one. 
um, kind of like, okay, it's a pitcher versus a, um, a batter. You weren't getting like, um, you know, four different people taking turns, throwing the ball back and forth. You never knew which guy was going to throw it. And you had four different guys who were trying to bat. It's quite, you know, hockey being a flow sport, having lots of different people having an influence on the outcomes. Of course, baseball actually does become like that once you look into like defense, uh, you know, like uh, when people have like back catchers uh, positioning, being able to influence where the strike box is and angling. So eventually baseball moves from something that's very, very simple to something more complex. And I mean, in the end, hockey is not that complex in terms of outcome. In the end, everyone wants to put the biscuit in the net. Right. Uh, so uh, there, there are some differences that definitely make it uh, difficult to model. Uh, one of the things that hockey's done very well is borrow from other sports. Uh, so like I'm sure people have seen us talk about other models. Expected goals was actually something that was originally uh, devised by soccer. Um, and then uh, the rate adjusted plus minus was something that first appeared in uh, basketball. So um, which are, you know, both of those sports are flow sports um, with similar objectives. Um, although basketball, of course, has, you know, no goaltender, but. Right. Yeah. Um, maybe just kind of an extension of the uh, regularized adjusted plus minus thing. Um, Patrick Bacon had uh, kind of an article uh detailing sort of the i guess the confidence of those models and maybe kind of a more broad it was kind of i think it was uh influenced by maurice's uh how do you put it a tirade against uh public analytics so uh i was wondering if maybe you could sort of touch on sort of maybe the difference, I don't know if the difference is the right way of putting it, but uh, sort of how, maybe if you could touch on how public models kind of work in terms of their confidence versus, you know, what a team model would kind of look like. I don't know if that was a great question or not, yeah, but. No, I can. Um, so one of the things... I mean, there's a long, long time ago uh, when the hockey um, blogosphere slash Twitter sphere was quite, quite a bit smaller than it used to be. And I once tweeted out like, hey, maybe we should, you know, put confidence intervals on our, on our uh, models and our results a lot more so we can be a little more honest about our confidence on things. And uh, Tyler Dello kind of replied to that and says, nobody would ever want to read that though. <laughs> Um, so that, that is one of the things that makes, you know, uh, oops, I did not want to, oh good. You disabled it. I almost shared my screen for some reason. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, one thing we have to keep in mind, uh, always is that, um, hockey analytics and, um, in terms of like the public, it's for a different reason than it is for, um, than you would be if you're working for a team. Uh, you're trying to answer a lot of the same questions, but your audience is a little bit different um, and their investment is a little bit different. Um, so you, you can, uh, you're not going to speak of things in the same way. Um, and like people already complain enough about how often like uh, 
anyone who's very scientifically minded will put use specific words like um, our best guess or like it's likely this and like that. There's always and then people are like, well, you just you know you're not really taking a stance on things. It's like yeah. well, it's because you know with the way the science is, is the as more information comes in, you know things things may change, things may adjust. Um, so there, there's a bit of that in terms of just like public versus private. Um, so uh, I haven't seen under the hood of everything, um, obviously, but um, not only do I run my own company that has their own stuff, I also have a lot of friends who've worked in uh, different fields. Like obviously um, I have some friends who've worked for different NHL teams. Um, and I've also had some friends who've worked for uh, competing uh, stats tracking companies. And uh, so generally speaking, um, when it comes to um, stats and models and stuff like that, public versus private, um, the first thing that I would like to say, um, and this is something that I was actually planning on, I, I have it in my drafts and I will be probably publishing this with hockey graphs pretty soon is, you know, like one of the things that people always complain about, it's like, oh, the, the, the data is just so inaccurate uh, with NHL public data, which is, you know, it's slightly true. Um, one of the things that we have to talk when we talk about statistics is um, in accuracy and precision are actually two completely different things. Um, so precision, if you're like throwing darts and you're always hitting the same spot, that's about how precise you are. Yeah, you might be missing the bullseye every time, but you're always like two centimeters to the left and one centimeter, centimeter down. That That's precision. Um, and then accuracy means like how how you are on average. So you might always be missing um, the bullseye, but like first throw your two centimeters too high, next one, your two centimeters too low, next one, your two centimeters to the right, when you're two centimeters to the left. So while you're wrong on each specific occasion, you're right on average. Um, and so those two problems do exist with NHL public data and actually private data, just not to the same degree. Um, right. But generally speaking, um, those things can be fixed. So for example, um, accuracy, or if you have accuracy, but you're lacking precision, so you're on average right, but you're kind of missing randomly, and that's the key word is randomly, um, that just washes away with sample size. So like, yeah, your model's gonna be kind of wrong in the beginning of the season, but as things go further and further and further, you become more and more right. Uh, if you have a precision problem, um, that hap, or sorry, not precision, an accuracy problem, that's what that is, is it's not a random uh, thing. It's always being one certain way or another. And that's usually because of a particular bias. So like one very well-known example is home scores bias. We know that generally speaking, home teams uh, get certain types of uh, biases that um, from the people who are tracking uh, for the NHL.com website. So like, for example, they might you know track extra shots or they might track the shots really close. And so as long as these things, if, if the mistakes are random, they average out in the end of the year. If the mistakes are not, well, not average out by the end of the year, but get closer to average by the end of the right, year, depending right. on how bad the mistakes are. Um, and then if the mistakes are not random and you're able to detect them by using certain types of tests, you're able to, you know, make adjustments and, and fix those. So like 
you know, those are problems, but they're not unfixable problems. That said, private data is better because of the fact that one, you don't have to wait for longer samples. And also on top of that, you don't have to make those type of adjustments. So that's one way where private data is better. Now that doesn't mean that left becomes right and right becomes left. What that means is just, you know, you're, you're more confident um, that you have a better um, part of the picture um, earlier. And then the other thing with private stats is that they're able to um, add more information onto things. So like one of the most popular things about expected goal models in arguments against them is there's no passing information. So like, yeah, sure, you're making a shot that's closer to the net, more value than a shot that's way far away, but it's different if, you know, you got a two on one and someone just passed and made the goalie move versus if it's just, you know, someone has just been standing there and it's a straight shot. And that's true. Um, that, that actually matters. That actually improves the chance of a shot be going into the net. And that should be detected by um, models, which with the public data, that's not possible. Um, but the thing is, um, like, and I don't have to use my own stuff. The reason why I tend to make arguments online uh, with public stuff is because of the fact that people can, you know, fact check me. Um, can't just be right. like, no, listen, my, my stuff that you can't see is, you yeah. know, perfect so you, you you're wrong no so like <laughs> so pointing out to this like um passing thing like yes um passing information dramatically changes whether or not a goal is gonna happen from a shot but um on hockey graphs there alan uh actually tested um using cory schneider's um uh passing data he implemented that into an expected goal model and he found that it improved the model but it didn't improve the model a lot and one of the reasons why that is, is people kind of forget that people, um, all these things are marginal changes. It's kind of like the, the law of diminishing returns. Every time you get a little bit more information, you get less value from that information because of the fact that, you know, McDavid's better than Brashear in multiple different ways, not just because of one way. It's not just because he gets more shots. It's because he gets more shots and he gets those shots closer. And he also is able to make certain passes that makes those shots more likely to go in. It's like, like while, you know, some players are better at some things versus others in general, a really, really, really good player is way better than a really, really bad player. And so while we didn't, you don't have this passing information in the public data, you do have who's better at X, Y, and Z. And those things do correlate somewhat to who's better at A, B, and C. And so while you're not getting all that picture, you are getting some of it, even though you've been ignoring it. Um, so that's one of the ways that like, yes, private data treated well and done right is much better than public data. But again, you're not, it's not gonna tell you this fourth liner is actually a first liner right. and the first liner is actually a fourth liner. This is not gonna be these huge changes. It's gonna be like this guy that you thought was average is actually slightly above average. Right. Uh, slightly above average is actually a little bit below um and there's also like a lot more coaching um opportunities because like you can look at like okay why is this player not good why is this player you know normally good but not doing good this year so there's a lot more utility to it and that's where the real stuff comes from but yeah that's my very long rant answer to that right oh, so if um if people are looking at some of these excuses or whatever that you hear from teams and they're like oh the team has better, so to say, um, data. It's 
it's never going to be like you're saying, it's not going to be completely different, right? It's not like the data that the team has is going to be miles and miles and miles different than what you have, right? So are you, would you agree that it's a very, very flawed argument to say that um, a specific stat is false because the teams is going to be much better and it's going to have a completely different answer? Like are, are the, the end results typically going to say similar things about a player or about a team? Yeah, I would, I would, this is totally me guessing because it's going to depend on um, what they tend to value things and such and like how they built their model. Um, like the pop, this is me assuming that the models are well built. Um, if they're not, there might actually be bigger issues. Um, but if the model is well built and smart and intelligently designed, which um, I've, I've actually never met any of the Winnipeg Jets guys, um, but I do know of people who've met Max, who's one of the Winnipeg Jets guys. And from what I've heard, um, he is an intelligent, nice person. And um, he's gone to public uh, hockey analytics conferences. So obviously he has some understanding about what's going on in the, in the public versus private. Um, so I wouldn't say that the Jets, from my guess, have a terrible model. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Uh, but I would say like generally, you if you're comparing two different models, they're probably going to be saying the same thing about 70% of the time. I'm just totally making up a number out of my head. Um, what's going to be different is that 30% where they differ. Um, and that's where the interesting stuff comes. But like, it's not, you're not going to, there's no, I, I would be extremely shocked that if there was a model that says, an, a public model that says negative five war player is actually a positive five war player. Like, I don't think you're gonna see that kind of a flip. Maybe like a minus five to minus two or minus one. And then on top of that, they're like, well, we also know that he's not healthy because uh, he hurt his knee, but he's playing through it. So like, even though he's not actually a minus five, he's a minus one, but we expect when he's healthy, he's gonna be a plus two. Um, I'm just, again, making numbers off the top of my head. But so I think a lot of people have to understand that a lot of what's placed in the media, whether it is by coaches or even um, uh, scribes, a lot of it is propaganda and not necessarily propaganda to like trick um, teams or sorry, uh, fans. Um, it's also true that like coaches will use media to also like um, inspire and talk to their players as well. Like, okay, coach gave me a vote of confidence. Um, he says that I'm actually, you know, doing a good job or he thinks that I'm doing this well or whatever. So there's, there's that involved. There's, it's always messy. It's never quite black and white. Um, I, I would say that generally speaking, it is probably more fans who look at things as, as that separated. Um, right. But yeah, it kind of differs too. So. Um, so maybe a more specific question about the Jets. Um I was kind of interested in your thoughts about, uh, I guess, the recent play of Josh Morrissey and maybe how he's struggling a little bit more in the last couple of years. Um, I was wondering if you think, you know, part of that is attributed to losing Jacob Truba or all of is all of it uh, because of losing Jacob Truba or how much of it? I was wondering if uh, maybe you had some insights on that. Yeah, um, so I'll start off with what we know and then I'll move eventually to what I'm guessing. Uh, so what we know is that um, Josh Morrissey had pretty good 
uh, to very good results um, during Jets. Uh, I don't want to say golden era, but like era where they had a very strong defensive core. Uh, that's with, you know, Enstrom, Buff, Truba, Morrissey, um, Schrott, and Myers. So like during that kind of timeline, um, you know, some of those players are much, much better than others. But, you know, um, in, as, a, as a group of six, I don't think the Jets have ever had better than at that point. And I don't think there's very few very many people would argue against that. Um, I would say that, you know, some of those players might've been more overvalued or more undervalued than others. Um, but we do know during that time, um, Josh Morrissey was able to produce results that were quite positive. Um, very, very strong um, statistics in terms of, you know, how the Jets performed with him on the ice. And what we also know is that since then, since the team has lost quite a bit of their depth um, in the back end, uh, it's not been the case. Um, and he's had some weak results. Uh, and his results are actually weaker than a lot of the players who are also on that team. Uh, so, you know, at, from a cursory glance, now moving into from what we know to what, you know, is like educated guesses, uh, generally speaking, you're like, okay, well, he's gone from being the number three, number four, depending on whether you're looking at ice time or whether you're looking at uh, five on five minutes or whether you're looking at um, his usage and how much uh, Maurice depends on him for line matching or high leverage minutes. Um, so like that change in usage might impact his results, um, which is true. It should. Uh, but even the numbers that try to adjust for that change in usage, um, it's, it, you should see him being still the kind of the same. Uh, but those type of numbers, he's still significantly dropped down with. And um, so that kind of raises a lot of real questions. And um, as I mentioned, I have one Hockey Graphs article in the drafts um, because I've come back to writing a little bit. Uh, but just the last, the first article that I wrote with my return was, you know, kind of on this about how right now public models, they adjust for the quality of player um, that you play with and the quality of player that you go against, but they don't really look at the more holistic um, other factors that um, can change. Uh, so, you know, like the example that I used in the article is, you know, if you're a defensive defenseman who's with a puck moving guy, so your job is to, you know, kind of break the cycle, take the puck, pass it off to the guy that can move it and that guy moves it for you. So, you know, you kind of work well, um, you're the weaker player, but he's the better player. And like the stats are able to figure that out. Then all of a sudden, you know, that guy gets traded or he gets moved up or whatever. And now you have a new partner and that partner is weaker. So the models are like, okay, he's this much weaker. So we expect results to go to drop by that much. Um, but also the results drop further than that. A model will just be like, oh, we probably over assumed how good both of you are so we're just going to drop you both by you know a certain percentage of that based off of you know past results but it might not just be the quality difference it might have been right about the quality difference what might have been is the fact that the other guy is also a more defensive defensive guy and he's not a very good puck mover too so all of a sudden before your job was to break the cycle get the puck pass it off right away to your buddy and your buddy would, you know, do the breakout for you. 
most often of course it doesn't always happen like that but you know you'll find that often um the pairings will defer most of the puck movement to one guy more than the other um now all of a sudden you're actually the better of the two puck movers so it's not just the difference in two, in your total overall quality there's also a change in decision making and so all of a sudden now you're being dependent on moving the puck and you're not as good at it and also you're not as likely to act because you know that you're not as good as it you're not going to make the same type of decisions that you know your partner was so there's a lot of that that goes on and i think that's a lot of what's happened with josh morrissey um i think that he was in a situation that he thrived in before where he wasn't the number one guy he was taking some sort of steps um, because of the fact that he was with Truba or when he was with Myers or when he was with Buff, um, those guys, all three of them play, you know, kind of different games, um, in terms of like their physicality and how, and how like, you know, rovery they are, but they all are still guys who like to carry the puck. Mm-hmm. And Morrissey was a guy, kind of more of a, like, even though he's, you know, he would play his, his role in his job. And now all of a sudden he's being leaned on differently. So I think that that's an impact of things. Um, of course, there's also other stuff, you know, like sometimes, you know, guys might just, you know, not have the same kind of summer training as they used to do, or maybe they now have a new girlfriend or boyfriend yeah. or whatever. Um, like you, you never know. There's a lot of other influences, but like um, in, we do know that the results are with Josh Morrissey are definitely not of the same caliber. And like, you can't like just say like oh he's the number one guy he's being leaned on too heavily because like truth is like he started off top time on ice uh last year and um eventually slowly what happened was pionk was the guy that actually ended up getting more of the ice time um this season again uh um off the get-go paul Maurice started off with maurice being the number one guy in terms of ice time um but that has been dropping a little bit and i'm trying to get the website to load so that i can actually see whether or not how much is dropped by but <laughs> um, we do know this that um when it comes to line matching against the best it's not morrissey's pairing that's doing that it's all been uh pionk's pairing so it's always been a forbert and pionk have been the guy that's the first one off the bench when the bet the next the other team's best line is on the ice it's you know if you have to hold the late pie or um, a late lead Pionk is the guy that they've been leaning on. So like, you know, there's not, it's, there's only so much excuse that you can give with the usage. I, so that's why I lean to believing that maybe it's more of a chemistry thing, but that, that said, you know, the usage has, has changed, especially in terms of like ice time. Like I, I did just finally get to double check, like Morrissey, um, you know, in 2017, 2018, he was generally speaking the number three or number four guy on the ice. Um, but now he's consistently the guy, number one, the guy that's on the top power play. He's um, still taking some PK minutes and, you know, like that, that gets some wear, you know, that's a lot of ice time. So I don't know if maybe that's influencing things. So. Right. So there's a whole bunch of stuff basically that could be impacting things, but you don't know exactly how much of each is kind of impacting the whole performance. Yeah, you, you, and that's kind of, like I said, um, in terms of public analytics do a pretty decent version in telling you how good a player is playing in a particular situation. 
what public analytics struggle with and sometimes analytics altogether without using qualitative information. This is why scouting still matters too, is the what's and the why's. Um, now, I think that taking an analytical approach to qualitative data like um, scouting, so like taking scouts notes and um, looking at it in an analytical sense, or um, also like, you know, uh, stratifying uh, qualitative data um, that can help. Um, so I think that both can help each other in their strengths and weaknesses. But generally speaking, uh, a lot of the public data, they're not very good at telling you why um, they're better at telling you um, how good a player is in a particular situation in the environment that they are. And yes, we can suss out a lot of environmental impact in terms of uh, coaching, line mates, line matching, zone starts, which you know does filter out a lot of the noise. Um, there's the quality of your line mate, but there's also the quality of what type of line mate he is. And that's right. something that's still missing. Right, certain players just kind of fit better together. So you think Morrissey and Truba were kind of that real nice fit where Truba could kind of do more of the puck moving in that sense. Yeah, they seem to do a lot well uh, together. And I mean, we also noticed the fact that, you know, it wasn't just Morrissey who hasn't been the same since those two have been split. It's also Truba that hasn't been the same since they split. But on the other hand, both of them were doing a lot better when they weren't paired with each other when they were both on the same team. So it's maybe not just, it might be also a change in environment, not just the change in line mate. Right, for sure. Um, another guy I wanted to touch on on the Jets was uh, Matthew Perot and kind of his uh, uh, recent resurgence. I know you and I have both been a fan of this player for, uh, for some time. Um, I was wondering maybe uh, if you had any insight into that and, uh, you know, maybe maybe why he was struggling a bit more last year, but, uh, but has come back and kind of seen more of a return to form this year. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, Perot came over uh, to the Winnipeg Jets uh, 2014, 15, and he was, he's been quite the depth player. Um, he, he's been called before by Paul Maurice as a Swiss army knife and Back, back when Paul Maurice said that, I kind of scoffed and I was like, well, the reason why he does well with everyone is because he's overly good. But, you know, I think what Paul Maurice kind of was meaning was the fact that um, the skill sets and the way that, uh, uh, sorry, I almost said Paul Maurice, uh, Matthew Perot <laughs> plays the game is the fact that I think he's a type of player that can be played in a lot of the different environments and succeed. Um, and I think that's what he means by the fact that he's a Swiss army knife. Like you look at, um, you know, some, some of us might say that, you know, Matthew Perot is sort of being wasted often on the Jets fourth line when he has been on the fourth line. Um, but like if there's an injury or let's say, if, you know, a top six line is going out, but they're missing one player because they just got off the power play. Um, often we see that it's actually Matthew Perot that's been put in that slot. And I think a lot of the reason why that is, is because of the fact that he is able to fit in multiple different styles, um, whether that's being a supportive player on the, on a top six line or whether that's being um, more of the four check 
uh, Duncan uh, guy uh, on the bottom six. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely, no matter which public model you look at, uh, the last season was pretty rough on um, Matthew Perot. And, you know, like in many ways, I think that Matthew Perot has never been quite the same as he got that uh, wrist injury that I still think was intentional uh, when the Jets were playing against the Blackhawks and he got slashed. Um, I think that his shot's never been quite the same. And that's when like the Jets stopped using him in the face-off dot as much as possible. And I think that might, you know, show that, you know, sometimes lingering and chronic injuries kind of stick around. Um, so I think part of the reason why, you know, Perot might be doing better than last year uh, is the fact that he's been well-rested and he's recuperated. Maybe that he needed that extra time off more so than other people typically get over the summer. Um, so that might be a factor to that. Um, but I mean, like one of the other things that I think it was is the fact that he did have a pretty stark um, fall down from 2017 going to 2020. Uh, those two years were a little bit of a sharper decline than you typically expect uh, from a player, um, which may be because of injuries. So maybe he healed up from it or maybe it was just, you know, uh, no matter what type of model you're using, um, whether it's a good one or a bad one, um, you're still going to get some variance in the results. Uh, the whole what makes a model good is how much it's able to get rid of that variance and how much it's able to tell you about a player. Um, so I think I think I think some of it is just the fact that you know we kind of expected a bit of a bounce back just because you think that he's a better player than that than what he was performing last year. But I think health has a good chunk to do it. And, you know, some people are going to say, you know, it's a contract year, but he's had some pretty good years where it wasn't a contract year as well. Right. Um, I also wanted to ask uh, kind of about the Jets goaltending. Um, I know a lot of uh, analytics people always say uh, goaltending is voodoo uh, and you can't, you can't predict results for goalies going forward. Now you've seen Hellebuck do extremely well while, he won the Vezina last season as the league's best goaltender. And this year he's been pretty darn good as well. Maybe not to the level of last season, but uh, is it possible that there's some sustainability in the Jets goaltending? Yeah. Um, so I'm partially in fault for the goaltending is voodoo thing. <laughs> I, wasn't the first, I wasn't the first one to say it, but I quite helped its popularity increasing and some people really dislike it. And I think the people who dislike it is because they don't really understand what we mean by that. Um, goaltending isn't complete randomness. Um, if, if that were the case, then like hockey analytics, people would be saying, Hey, just sign two AHLers for league minimum, yeah. throw them out there, save the, save the cap for someone else. Um, it's not like that. Um, what we say with, with goaltending is voodoo is um, now I wish I could think of the exact quote. There was an old Arctic ice hockey article that was done by Gabriel Desjardins and I'm trying to remember the study off the top of my head. And so I might mix up the numbers. Um, but he said, what he did is he looked at um, what he called an HL call up, which he looked at as being someone who's generally speaking, gets around a 900 save percentage. And then he looked at what he called an all-star player. And that's like 
any player who is around or above a 920 career save percentage. Um, and this is a while ago, so save percentage numbers have kind of changed since then. Um, but um, so he was looking at this and he was comparing um, game to game performance, uh, like not the overall average performance of these guys, but the game to game performances of these guys. And um, if you looked at like five game spreads, so like five games, five games, five games, five games, and then you look at the other guys, five games, five games, five games, five games. Sometimes I think I can't remember what the number was. It was either 10 game spreads and it's once out of five or it's five game spreads and it's once out of 10. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was basically, let's just say it's five game spreads, once out of 10, once out of 10, the HL call up over a five game set outperformed the all-star guy now you're like oh, okay that's not super often but like think about that think about like imagine over a five game spread so like you know 82 games there's a whole bunch of those tanner glass outperforms Connor mcdavid once out of 10 times <laughs> like that's that's not happening right it's like oh, like <laughs> Connor McDavid's not always going to be good. Tanner Glass is not always going to be bad. But that extremality in like the fact that like some random call up is going to be the same level, it, it, it's it's not this it's not going to be the same thing. And that's kind of like what we mean by goaltending is voodoo. It's despite the fact that you are able to stratify somewhat. These are the kind of better guys. These are the kind of the weaker guys. These are the guys that are more likely to be good. These are the guys that are less likely to be good. So you're able to figure that kind of out. And but you're not. There's even if you know that this guy's good and that guy's not, there's still a pretty good chance that the performance is flipped. And so that's that's what it just it just makes things um, difficult because of the fact that you might you might put a bet on the good guy, but you don't actually get the results. Now, of course, that study was done with just base save percentage. So there is a little bit of um, confounding variables with, uh, with defense and stuff like that. But generally speaking, as I said, you know, you don't, you don't see um, Sidney Crosby over a five game spread be as bad as Tanner Glass just because, you know, his line mates aren't as good. Like Crosby has been carrying terrible line mates for a good chunk of his career yeah but he still does Sidney Crosby things because he's Sidney Crosby Connor McDavid's been toiling away in Edmonton Edmonton's got a terrible team but he's still Connor McDavid so so I don't really hold too much excuse on to that being why you get the the variety of results with goaltenders that's just more the fact that you know goals are rare and so it only takes, you know, a couple of the tiniest of slips to be, be that like all-star goaltender performing like a, like a call-up or you get that, you know, um, I'm trying to remember the, that, that guy that was like a barely an AHL goaltender and he shut out Team Canada for, was it Latvia? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I'm trying to remember. There was a whole, was that like his 56 save shadow or something like that? Like, yeah, it something I, I remember the example. I just can't remember the guy's name, honestly. Once uh, somebody says it, it'll, it'll completely come back to me. But... Uh, I don't remember his name. It was definitely Lapia, though. You're right. But yeah, I don't know. But uh, I remember yeah. finding him in one of the uh, NHL video games after that and being like, gotta sign this guy. <laughs> 
I just found it. Christers Gudlevskis. That's the one. Yeah. Gudlevskis. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. oh my God. I'm not Latvian, so I'm not going to pronounce anything properly. <laughs> Fair enough. We're all probably botching it anyway. Yeah. And uh, both of our goaltenders this year have pretty high goal saved above expected, I believe, right? And I know that was Connor Hellbuck's big thing last year was that he was like miles ahead of the next person behind him in that sense. But I guess, and this is going back to the whole sample size thing, it's haven't been a ton of games this year, especially not for Brussois, but I guess they have decent. Um, and is there any kind of model that reflects that properly? It shows the goal saved above expected um, and in that sense. Is there so much, so to speak, voodoo, or is that a little bit more predictable? Yeah, so um, what those models do is they, um, so generally speaking, just save percentages, just looking how often a goaltender stops the puck relative to um, how often they're shot at. Um, the thing, those goals saved above expected, what they do is they take it one level further, and they, they adjust a shot based off of how difficult um, the model perceives the shot to be. Um, and that's using those uh, factors that we talked about before. A shot that's closer to the net is considered tougher to shoot or to save than a shot further away, all things being equal. Um, and as we mentioned before, um, unfortunately missing from the public data is some sort, some things like, for example, um, passing data. So like, while you don't have a perfect picture of the difficulty of a goaltender, you have a decent um, starting point in terms of the difficulty of shots that a goaltender is. Um, so those goals saved above average um, statistics are the great are the best public way uh, to evaluate a goaltender. Um, and one thing to mention is the fact that there are different um, models that uh, do shot quality. And um, so like there's an expected goal model on natural stat trick. There's um, a expected goal model on uh, evol uh, evolving hockey. There's a, um, one for money puck. And so all those models are slightly different uh, because of the fact that they may or may not include certain things. So for example, I know money puck, um, they do flurry adjusted. So what they do is they account for, you know, sometimes there's like three or four shots within a span of like, two seconds or one second. Um, and so they might adjust based off of those uh, factors while other models like for example, evolving hockey doesn't adjust for that. Um, and there's some trade-offs in that. Um, and that comes down to like uh, models. Um, some models are more descriptive and telling you how many, how, how difficult it was that a goaltender um, was able to make that many saves. Um, while other models may be a little bit more predictive um, of uh, future success, because despite the fact that you're ignoring um, certain difficult factors, it might be lucky or unlucky about the fact that they were able to outperform that difficulty. Um, so you will get different expected goal models just because you know they might be test or training their data off of um, different different timelines, but they also might. Uh, account for things a little bit differently. So I think with goaltending, if I was used and to judge goaltenders, I would um, kind of look at a lot of these different models and just kind of keep multiples of them in mind that, you know, they're slightly different because um, some are valuing different things more so than others. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah for sure. sure. Yeah. yeah. I've got a little antithesis. 
no no I totally get what you're saying it's good and it's also like generally speaking for this whole episode so far it's been great that you've been able to sort of break down some of these things that people like myself will see and at times scratching my head uses a defense in my argument even though I don't always completely understand it so it's been nice to uh kind of hear a bit of a breakdown of why these things um make sense and how they make sense and then why they're also not perfect at all times um I think we're gonna kind of wrap it up here but I do have one last point that I kind of want to bring up I know that a couple days ago you had mentioned um the whole concept of four four forwards and one defenseman and I want to talk about that a little bit and tell us sort of what why you chose to bring that up with this current Jets team that we have all right so talking being the way that I am talking first from a more philosophical theoretical standpoint moving more specific uh you know like why is hockey played with three forwards and two defensemen well because it not always has because originally there was actually six positions there was a rover um but after they got rid of the rover um it always was that way three forwards two defensemen um and you know generally speaking you know that probably is the right thing to do just because of the fact that rosters are built to play that way um but the truth is it's not necessarily the right way gonna like it's highly highly unlikely that the best way to play the game is always three forwards and always two defensemen no matter the situation i mean we already know that because of power play so originally you know a lot of almost all power plays were three forwards and two defensemen and then every once in a while you'd get like a, a forward in the defenseman position. And then like analytics started studying this stuff and said, Hey, um, you know, we noticed that the, the power play units that are four forwards, one defenseman tend to outperform the units that are three forwards, two defensemen. And it's not because of the fact that four forwards is good and three forwards is not good. It's more sophisticated than that. It's just generally speaking, with the way that rosters are built nowadays, generally speaking, the offensive prowess of um, the average top line forward is better than the average top pairing defenseman. Not always going to be the case. It'll depend on your typical team. Um, now, when I, everyone, like let's let's talk about like the Jets' current performance, and um, let's look at what I consider to be the best modern Jets team, the 2017-2018 team, um, we already kind of said that, like, you know, that that group of six defensemen was probably the best group of six defensemen the Jets have had, and very few people are going to argue against that. Um, not too many people are going to say, you know, Pionk, Forbert, uh, Morrissey, uh, Poolman, Beaulieu, and um, DeMello are a better group than that six. You know, some of those guys on the new team might be better than some of the guys in the old team. Uh, but on average, you know, that's uh, a better, better group. Now, um, in the forwards, you know, you might get some people who debate that. Some people might say that the old group was better. Some people might say the new group is better. Um, you, you'll get some debate on that. And that's something that um, tells you something about the differences in the team. So, like, you already know that most people no doubt will argue that the Jets forwards group is much better than their defensive group. Um, so if your 12 forwards 
are on average better than your six defensemen, why are you evening out the ice time? Um, why not try to get some more extra ice time for those players that you view as being better on quality? Well, usually the answer is because the system is built that way. Um, the way that we defend um, the, you know, how most teams kind of defend in the defensive zone or how they attack in the defensive zone is based off of three forwards, two defensemen. But the, the fact is you don't necessarily have to be. And if you don't do it that way, um, if you kind of think of a system that would work with four forwards and one defenseman, it might be better based off of the difference in player quality uh, because of the fact that you're getting better quality players on the ice more often. Um, and let's be honest, like, you know, hockey already is slowly becoming less of a specific position um, sport. Like you go back, you know, 20, 20 years ago, uh, generally speaking, defensemen weren't nearly as active. They didn't move the puck nearly as much. Um, their job was just to, you know, stand in front of the net and clear, clear the puck. Um, you know, uh, Fords, uh, it was usually, it was always winger top left, winger top right, center down low. Now people use an F1, F2, F3 system. Uh, so already it's becoming, you know, before wingers were different than centers, but now it's not always the case. Um, so I think hockey's already moving slowly, but surely into a less specific positional sport where you kind of, you know, you always will have certain roles because certain players are better at some things than others. Um, but the truth is that um, just because every team is doing it one way doesn't necessarily mean every team has to. It's going to be better for some teams to keep the status quo, but it will be better for some other teams to kind of change it up. And I think the Jets being a team that, in my personal opinion, has one of the better forward groups in the NHL, um, but probably one of the weakest defensive groups in the NHL, uh, it might be worth it to try to get more ice time to those forwards and less ice time to the defensemen. Neat. I think that's really cool. And I think it's very um valid too it's a very progressive way of thinking about um a team that I would almost venture to say has one of the greatest gaps between their defensive and their offensive kind of rosters there like I think a lot of people would put the Jets forwards up there with some of the best in the league and their defensemen down with some of the worst in the league but uh that's neat thank you so much um for coming and sharing a lot of this insight with us today it was super fun to uh hear about some of these um things that a lot of us already kind of feel or have inklings towards in a very logical perspective. So thank you so much, Garrett, Brian, um, much appreciated. And we'll see you all next time. Thanks for having me. I'm Kurt Gilback, and thank you for listening to the Jet Centric Broadcast.